0: Tony Wellington is an author, photographer, politician, freelance writer, artist, filmmaker, lecturer, musician and social commentator. His books include Happy, Exposing the Cultural Myths About Happiness, Don't Shoot the Best Boy, The Film Crew at Work, which he co-authored with John Shand, and two books about Noosa, the most recent being Wild About Noosa. Tony is a former mayor of Noosa on Queensland's Sunshine Coast. Today I'm talking to Tony Wellington about his new book, Freak Out, How a Musical Revolution Rocked the World in the 60s. Tony, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
0: The 60s continues to be a reference point in popular music history. What is it about the music of that decade that was so powerful and that still resonates today?
1: I guess uh, one of the key words for music in the 60s was it was exploratory. There was a massive appetite for inventiveness. What you had is a a decade that began uh, with Elvis and surf rock and folk. And by the end of the decade, had players like Hendrix and King Crimson and Led Zeppelin introducing psychedelia and uh, heavy rock and various other genres along the way, Uh, even the notion of melding folk with rock was considered anathema in the early 60s. But by the time the birds came along in the mid-60s and introduced it, it suddenly became acceptable. Uh, So in a way, the 60s created many of the genres that are still the bedrock of contemporary music today. Many of them had their start in the 60s. And really, there's never been another decade, another period uh, where a contemporary art form like music has gone through so many shifts and created such a panoply of different styles. Tony, this is
0: such a huge task you've taken on. Freakout could easily have been an encyclopedia. There's so many spheres of influence to explore in that decade. How did you decide on the boundaries?
1: Well, that's very interesting because the the first draft was uh, almost twice as long as the final draft. Uh, So there had to be a lot of pruning, obviously. Uh, But the the thing I kept coming back to was how did contemporary music of the day interrelate with what was going on in Western culture at the time? So the music that I chose to talk about was responding to the social upheaval of the day. And let's not forget uh, that in the 60s, The major movements that are still apparent today, uh, the women's movement, black rights, environmentalism, gay rights, all of these really took hold in the 60s. And music was much more, uh, how can I say, communitarian back then. Uh, There was much more universality. When, When a hit song was released, everyone knew about it. Music had a way of penetrating the culture in the 60s in the way that, unfortunately, it really doesn't quite manage to do today.
0: There's a really radical shift in musical style from the 50s to 60s. What happened musically and and what drove those changes?
1: So the 50s established rock and roll, which really, of course, came from uh, black music. And indeed, the term rock and roll was both a synonym for black music and a synonym for having sex. And rock and roll took hold, of course, in the mid-50s when white players managed to uh, utilise the blues and rockabilly and some of the African-American music of the day uh, with a beat that was consistent, a 4-4 beat, uh, that could make it palatable to white audiences. So you had 50s rock and roll, but by the end of the 50s, Elvis had gone into uh, the army And the music industry had largely strangled uh, the music of the 50s and it became very much homogenised and dull. Basically, uh, record sales slumped in the late 50s and early 60s. So there was this period where nothing much was happening apart from surf rock and novelty songs. And then along came the Beatles. And the Beatles had been listening to African-American music. They'd been listening to Elvis. And what they did is they managed to repackage it in a way that was more vibrant and more upbeat and and themselves presented the unified group of young people. They were the kind of archetypal friends, if you like. And this came at a time when America had just experienced uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis and JFK's assassination, et cetera. And so uh, they were a breath of fresh air to America. And on the back of that, there was the British Invasion which brought all the other bands over to the USA. And that opened the doors suddenly for bands to firstly uh, be more creative internationally, but more importantly, uh, bands were suddenly writing their own music. And what this did is it took music creation away somewhat from the music producers and the record companies who were used to finding tracks, finding artists and putting them together. Now the bands themselves had more control. And, of course, from there it just exploded.
0: The Beatles are one of two icons covered in your book. Bob Dylan is the other. Between these two, are they truly representative of the musical revolution of this decade?
1: I think that you'd have to say that the Beatles drove many of the musical changes that occurred, particularly in between 63 and 67. If, If you think about... Uh, The music on Please, Please Me, their first album, which was little poppy songs recorded largely in one take with the band all playing together. And then just four years later, you have that extraordinary album, Sergeant Peppers, which had tape manipulation, had orchestral music, amazing multi-tracking. It had backwards guitar. It had Indian classical music, all in this great melting pot. In a period of just four years, they went from playing simple pop songs to music that was meant to be listened to, not necessarily danced to, and certainly that couldn't be performed on stage. So the the Beatles really drove it hard. They they drove the changes in popular music. They weren't afraid to say to their audience, we're going to do something very different now, and you're going to be surprised by it. And we know we're going to leave some of you behind because you won't understand what we're doing. But the rest of you try and keep up. Uh, So, you know, that kind of appetite for change was extraordinary. Dylan, on the other hand, his major effort was to turn Top 40 radio into music that spoke about the events of the day. Because at the beginning, he really was a voice of the people. Uh, He was writing songs uh, that were protest songs. He very quickly moved away from that, of course. Uh, But if you think about... For example, 1965, one of the first songs to come out was Subterranean Homesick Blues. Top 40 Radio had never experienced anything like it. Um, What it was was beat poetry set to music, really. And it changed the parameters, if you like, of what lyrics could actually say and do in top 40 radio, as did um, Rainy Day Women, as did Like a Rolling Stone shortly afterwards. And this made the Beatles prick up their ears too, because the Beatles suddenly realised, hey, we don't have to be singing about holding hands with girlfriends. We can actually start singing about life experiences. So there's a pretty strong exchange of ideas between Dylan and the Beatles? They met once when the Beatles first moved to America to do their first tour and the Beatles actually requested to be able to speak with Dylan. He met them in a hotel in New York and uh, so there's some cross fertilisation. But the Beatles have been listening to each of his albums that had come out before then and I include in my book a personal recollection of someone driving Bob Dylan in a car when over the radio came I want to hold your hand, their big breakthrough hit. And Dylan was absolutely speechless because he hadn't heard anything like it. So, yes, I would say that uh, Dylan influenced the Beatles in terms of what was allowed in Top 40 radio. And the Beatles influenced Dylan to move from being a folk artist to a folk rock artist.
0: Your book deals primarily with rock music. Uh, also folk music. And I maybe wonder whether there's some kind of tension between those two genres, which in a sense drove the, I guess, the diversity and complexity of the music of the 60s.
1: And you've picked up on a a fabulous point, uh, because it's absolutely true uh, that even within the folk revival, there was a tension between the traditional folk artists who were playing music, you know, from Appalachia or or in England, you know, from the, the mines and then there was the new folk artists like Peter, Paul and Mary and the Kingston Trio who were suddenly finding their way into Top 40 radio making large sums of money. But they weren't singing what was traditional folk music. They were repackaging folk music for a broader audience. So there was that battle going on. And that even played out at the you know, Newport Folk Festival. When uh, Dylan came along and started to introduce folk music into uh, Top 40, what happened was Top 40 moved from novelty songs and love songs to playing songs that were about contemporary experiences, about movements and social change. And that meant that that area was no longer the uh, proclivity of folk music. Folk music had lost its prioritist right to sing about causes. Suddenly rock music was singing about causes as well. And in a way, that's what meant that the uh, the folk revival kind of withered away. Now, your book's
0: a lot about these icons, the Beatles, Dylan and so on, but there's also a lot of smaller acts that fill the gaps between these peaks. I was really interested to read about the Fugs. Tell me about the Fugs.
1: Yeah, the Fugs were a um, bunch of uh, radicals uh, with Allen Ginsberg sort of skirting around them. And, of course, Ginsberg was also uh, uh, kicking around with Dylan, but the Fugs uh, decided that their intention was to shock. They believed uh, that American culture uh, needed to be shocked out of its complacency, not just with regard to the Vietnam War, but also with regard to approaches to sex, etc. Uh, so, from their very first album, they decided that they wouldn't concern themselves with the niceties of music. Instead, they would play roughhouse. Um, uh, they wouldn't keep in time. They were sang very badly, but they sang songs like Slum Goddess and uh, Coca-Cola Douche, using Coca-Cola as a douche after sex. They also, of course, put Blake's poetry to music. So they had a kind of beat generation sensibility. But they also became very much involved in many of the demonstrations of the day, the March on Washington, etc., Uh, where members of the FUGs attempted to levitate the Pentagon building 300 feet into the air and have a sex orgy on the lawns of the uh, White House. So they were very uh, influential, not musically, but thematically, if you like. And also, once again, the Beatles were listening. There's a funny anecdote in the book. Uh, One of the FUGs' names was Thule Kupferberg. That was his real name. Uh, And Paul McCartney... Uh, was uh, given a copy of The Fug's first album. And, and for a while thereafter, when people asked him for, for his autograph, he'd sign it, Thule Cup for Berg, because he loved the name.
0: Even listening to The Fug's on, uh, there's a couple of clips on YouTube there, it's another world, I might say. Uh, and speaking of another world, near the end of the book, we move into the era of prog rock, progressive rock, and that, brought back some real memories for me uh, like the first time I listened to uh, King Crimson's 21st Century Schizoid Man mm. I actually played played 21st Century Schizoid Man uh, to a friend of mine of a, an earlier generation and he said well that's just distortion <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Lovely. It was a real breakthrough album, that in the Court of the Crimson King. And I suggest in my book, in the way that um, Sgt Pepper's opened the doors of rock music to allow people to go in all sorts of directions, uh, in Court of the Crimson King, actually pushed those doors a little bit further apart. When I listen to that track, it's really
0: like, you know, the breakdown of of everything we know as a civilization. It's so bleak and terrifying. So yeah. almost like an Realistic. open... Yeah, almost like an open wound. Yeah. And that led me to think, you know, do you think the music of the 60s was prescient in some way? It feels like that.
1: Well, I mean, we're still listening to 60s music today. Uh, those, that music still has relevance, not just to we old baby boomers, you know, uh, because of nostalgic reasons, but because it was speaking to a zeitgeist and much of that zeitgeist still resurfaces today. So I think, yes, uh, the music had uh, currency, And that currency often remains. It was prescient because uh, the 70s brought a very dynamic shift in Western society. Suddenly you had the self-esteem movement and everything went from a communitarian culture in the 60s to a more individualistic, selfish culture in the 70s. And that big shift in a way was preempted uh, by what rock was doing in the late 60s
0: can't talk about this decade without talking about Vietnam. It haunts the entire period. It has a particular resonance for Australians, even to this day. Talking about Australia, how did Australian musicians react musically to the conflict? And was that music effective in driving change, social or political change?
1: The Australian music scene was not, dare I say, as courageous as what was going on in America at the time. Uh, but... Coupled with that was the fact that throughout the 60s, Australian radio was far more interested in what was coming out of London and America than what was coming out of Australia. So it was very difficult, in fact, for Australian artists to have hit singles on the radio. Of course, there were plenty of acts that did uh, the Easy Beats and Johnny Young and Normie Rowe, et cetera. And and the biggest hit single for the 60s in Australia was Normie Rowe's K Sarah Sarah backed with um, Shaken All Over. And that says a lot about 60s and the music in Australia because, you know, "Casey Sera, Sera was a, a kind of middle of the road song made popular by Doris Day. And Shaken All Over was a kind of crazy rock song and yet they could go together harmoniously just as when the Beatles came to Australia you know the hit single that pushed them off number one was a version of of Over the Rainbow by Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs so the Australian music scene was was all over the cook shop in the 60s the easy beats brought a slightly harder rock sensibility uh, but the, the Australian music scene wasn't really talking about Vietnam the Vietnam songs that were big in Australia ended up being things like Country Joe and the Fishers, um, song um, about the Vietnam War, which is a massive hit. Um, and of course, it, the Vietnam War wove its way into all sorts of songs uh, by the Rolling Stones and the Who and everyone else. Uh, but I wouldn't, what was driving the uh, protest movement musically in Australia was actually the folk scene. Uh, so, you had Jeannie Lewis, Glenn, Glenn Tomasetti, um, uh, Gary Shearston. These people were the ones that were writing protest songs in Australia. They weren't getting hit radio uh, attention, but they were certainly getting the attention of the protesters and the demonstrators.
0: This book is all about music. And as a final question to you, I want to find out what your changing attitudes to this music might be. And in the process of writing and researching this book, what did you discover about yourself? and your attitude to the, this music. And do you find yourself listening to this music differently now?
1: That's a big question. Um, thanks for asking it. Uh, I, I, inevitably, I made some discoveries uh, while I was uh, working through the book uh, because I had to try and continually set aside my own taste, my own experience to try and appreciate the broader experience. Um, and so for example I hadn't listened to Nina Simone in the 60s and now Nina Simone just blows me away Um, I also spent more time listening to uh, African-American music than I had back in the 60s where mostly what was coming through my speakers was white rock Um, so uh, it has broadened my attitude I think that understanding better the way in which the music is embedded in the culture of the day certainly gives me a whole different way of appreciating what was going on. In some ways, I have less appreciation for a band like the Rolling Stones because I now perceive a sort of cynicism that was at work uh, in their music. But I have greater appreciation uh, for other artists like Dylan, who I didn't really like because you know, his nasally voice never really attracted me, but I now appreciate much more how significant his music was for the era. So, yes, it has created some significant shifts in the way I listen to music. And on a Saturday morning when we're having pancakes for breakfast, uh, we're streaming, you know, a 60s stations, and I enjoy every moment of it.
0: Well, Tony, it's certainly a fascinating book. Lots of things to be discovered and rediscovered for many people too. So thank you very much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: I've been talking to Tony Wellington about his new book, Freak Out, How a Musical Revolution Rocked the World in the 60s. It's published by Monash University Publishing and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxure Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxureread.com.au to find out how.